we live in an anti-authoritarian age. We have a sense of skepticism about those in authority. We doubt that they're for our good, and we wonder how they might be using their power to harm us. We do this often. We lack an ability to trust authority because in our post-truth age, who can tell me what is true? I define what is true for me, you define what is true for you, so the saying goes, this is often the spirit of the age, the zeitgeist, as it's said. In a culture that preaches individualism and autonomy, who really has any authority over me? Who has any authority over you? When we are the masters of our fate and the captains of our soul, it is hard to want to submit to any form of authority, let alone godly authority. To make matters worse, most can't tell you the difference between authority and authoritarianism. Many look at authority through the lens of authoritarianism, which is the abuse of authority. But this problem with authority is really nothing new, is it? It's actually been going on ever since Genesis chapter 3. In that chapter, God laid down the boundaries or the rules for how life works best in his garden. In fact, he created Adam and Eve to have dominion or authority over his garden temple. Adam was specifically called to guard and to keep that temple garden from anything that would disrupt it or that would defile it. Well, that didn't go so well, did it? And rather than living under God's good authority in the garden, Satan tempts Adam and Eve to throw off his authority and to establish their own false authority. But in doing so, it didn't make them free, but instead it actually enslaved them to the authoritarian taskmaster of sin. And since then, we have all felt the effect of this on our very lives. But now that Christ has come, how do we respond to those in authority over us? Now that Christ has come, how do we respond to those in authority over us? How do we glorify God when their decisions and their actions hurt us? How do we commend the gospel to the world that is watching us suffer for doing good? And as we do suffer for doing good, where do we look for any help in the midst of that suffering? Well, these are just some of the questions that we're going to be considering today from 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 to 25. So if you would, just go ahead and turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 to 25. The Apostle Peter is writing to Christians in Asia Minor, that is modern-day Turkey, who are suffering in a world that is not their home. And so he writes to them, he writes to these churches to encourage them to stand firm in the faith, to stand firm in the salvation that Christ has secured for them through his own death and resurrection. And he encourages them in chapter 1 by spending time just celebrating their salvation in Christ. That this future salvation actually ought to motivate godly living in the present. We've seen that over the past couple of weeks as we've been working through the book of 1 Peter. And so Peter commands these Christians to set their hope on this salvation by being a holy people, by being a fearful people, a loving people, a hungry people that craves the spiritual milk of God's word. 
And after spending time celebrating their salvation, Peter helps them to celebrate their status as God's chosen people who are called to proclaim his praises. And in our text today, Peter is going to explain how exactly do we go about proclaiming the praises of Christ who has called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. How do we go about doing that? And he's going to shift from speaking about our relationship to one another as Christians now to speaking about our relationship to the rest of the world, and in particular those in authority over us. So with that, let's read 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 to 25. You can follow along with me as I read. Dear friends, I urge you as strangers and exiles to abstain from sinful desires that wage war against the soul. Conduct yourselves honorably among the Gentiles, so that when they slander you as evildoers, they will observe your good works and will glorify God on the day he visits. Submit to every human authority because of the Lord, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to governors as those sent out by him, to punish those who do what is evil and to praise those who do what is good. For it is God's will that you silence the ignorance of foolish people by doing good. Submit as free people, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but as God's slaves. Honor everyone. Love the brothers and sisters. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Household slaves, submit to your masters with all reverence, not only to the good and gentle ones, but also to the cruel, for it brings favor If because of a consciousness of God, someone endures grief from suffering unjustly, for what credit is there if when you do wrong and are beaten, you endure it? But when you do what is good and suffer, if you endure it, this brings favor with God. For you were called to this because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He did not commit sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When he was insulted, he did not insult in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, so that having died to sins, we might live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but you have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. I think the main point, the main idea that Peter is getting at in this text is this. And so each week I try to give you a main idea, the reason that I'm doing that. Why is because there is a point to the text, and that point to the text ought to be the point of the sermon that I'm giving to you. And so that's part of one of the reasons why we give you that main idea each week. And so I think the main idea that Peter is getting at in this text is that a life that glorifies God is one that submits or one that honors God-given authority because of Christ. A life that glorifies God is one that honors God-given authority because of Christ. I'm going to say that again. A life that glorifies God is one that honors God-given authority because of Christ. Peter is speaking right here to Christians about how they live as God's chosen people in a sinful world. And to do so, he actually shows us 
how to do that? Well, number one, he's gonna, we're going to consider first the aim. The aim of honorable conduct. The aim of honorable conduct. We're going to be looking at that in verses 11 to 12. And then Peter's going to give us two examples of how to conduct ourselves honorably among non-Christians. Well, first, we've got to honor the governing authorities. That's going to be point number two. Honor your governing authorities. We're going to see that in verses uh, 13 to 17. The second example that he's going to give to us is that of honoring your boss. So that's the third point. Honor your boss in verses 18 to 20. Honor your boss. And then lastly, in order to really understand and grasp why we do any of this, we're going to look at the honorable one in verses 21 to 25. So we're going to see the aim of honorable conduct. We're going to think about that in context of governing authorities and then the workplace. And then we're going to stare at the honorable one who allows for us to be able to suffer unjustly. All right, so point number one, the aim of honorable conduct in verses 11 and 12. These first two verses serve as the, really the big idea, the thematic statement for this entire section of the book, going all the way to chapter 4, verse 11. Verses 11 and 12, they're big verses, right? So he is telling you up front, this is what I'm going to be talking about right here, all the way to chapter 4, verse 11. That's going to be a couple of sermons for us before we get all the way to the end of chapter 4, verse 11. And we know this because Peter bookends this entire section with what but the glory of God in Jesus Christ. If you just go to chapter 4, verse 11, if you want to flip over there, you can if you want. He says that so that God may be glorified through Jesus Christ in everything. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. What do you know? Chapter 2, verse 12. What is he talking about there? He's talking about how our conduct, our honorable conduct, is going to be seen by others all to glorify God on the day that he visits, right there at the end of of verse 12. And so we know it because he bookends with that theme of God's glory in Jesus Christ through honorable conduct of his people. And so in verses 11 and 12, it serves really as the primary point that Peter is making. And the following verses are really going to explain in different contexts what that actually looks like. And so Peter has just finished reminding these Christians of their identity and their calling in Christ. That's what we saw last week in chapter 2, verses 1 to 10, that they are God's chosen people. They're called to proclaim his praises because he is the one who has called them out of the darkness of their own sin into the marvelous light of his son, Jesus Christ. And this transfer from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of his beloved son through faith, it actually brings about another reality in our life as Christians. So not only are we chosen by God, but we are, as Peter says here, exiles and strangers. We may be spiritually chosen by God in the world, but yet we are strangers in this world until Jesus returns. We live for the city of God in the city of man. That's what we do. We're strangers because of our allegiance to Jesus. We have different values. We have different loves, different desires than what the rest of the world wants. And so we may be chosen, but there is still going to be conflict in this world. And Peter shows us that the greatest enemy that we face is not financial ruin, 
It is not political upheaval, nor is it moral decay in our society. Instead, the greatest enemy that we face as Christians is the enemy within us. It's the enemy within. Look at what Peter says in verse 11. He says this very thing. Dear friends, I urge you as strangers and exiles to abstain from sinful desires that wage war against your soul. Peter's already spoken about some of these sinful desires. If you go back to chapter 2, verse 1, he calls us to rid ourselves of them, to rid ourselves of malice and deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all slander. And this makes sense, I mean, just given the context of people insulting Christians and them not insulting them in return. But all of us in here can think of other, other evil desires within our own hearts that we also need to abstain from, right? We think of other sinful desires such as slander. We think of other things such as pride and lust and greed and anger and so on, right? We can go on and on with these. Our sinful desires include any desire that is contrary to the will and the character of God. That is what a sinful desire is. It is anything, any desire that is contrary to the will and the character of God. Society will tell us that we need to listen to the desires of our hearts. That we need to be true to ourselves. Peter says that's actually suicide. Those desires aren't for you. They're actually against you. They're waging war against you. They don't define you, but you better bet they're going to destroy you if you don't abstain from them. And until Christ returns, these sinful desires, they do not rest. They do not sleep, but they wage spiritual war against your soul. So when your sinful desires rear their ugly head, remember that they don't want to trip you up. They actually want to take you down. That's what they want to do. Now, this may seem depressing, right? (laughs) It's like, man, really, every day I wake up, I'm at a war. Yeah, that seems depressing. But in reality, it's actually meant to be quite hopeful. These desires are not actually beyond your control. There's a reason why Peter tells you, he commands you to abstain from them. He would not command you to abstain from them if he did not think that you could actually abstain from them. right? So because, that, because we are Christians, because we have received the gift of the Holy Spirit through the death and the resurrection of Christ, we've trusted in him, we've received the gift of the Holy Spirit, we have now been empowered by the Holy Spirit to put to death such simple desires. That's why Peter can come to these Christians and say, abstain from them that wage war against you. You're able to do that, not in your own power, but in the power that God has given to you through the gift of the Holy Spirit. And the place that we begin when waging war against sin is at the level of our desires. It's at the level of our desires. This is one of the reasons why Jesus condemned the Pharisees, looking clean on the outside. But what are they? Full of greed, full of greed and self-indulgence on the inside in Matthew 23. Our sinful desires diminish our delight in God by directing us away from God to those things that actually wage war against us and want to take us down. When we slander, 
we find greater delight in someone's pain for hurting us than delighting in the God who laid down his own life for us. Sinful desires delight in what destroys us. Godly desires delight in the one who came to save us. So brothers and sisters, is Christ more satisfying to you than getting even? Is he more satisfying to you than getting even? Is he a greater treasure than using others for your own selfish gain? Is he a greater delight than satisfying your sinful lust and craving for more? When our delight is in God, then our godly desires provide the arsenal that we need to be able to wage war against sinful desires. And these godly desires will lead to honorable conduct. In verse 12, Peter gives the positive side of this, the honorable conduct side. A holy life does not just stop with abstaining from those things that are waging war against us. It doesn't just stop at abstaining from sinful desires as if, like, that's it. That's all we need to do is just stop doing those things. No, it doesn't stop there. Instead, now he commands us to conduct yourselves honorably among the Gentiles. And what Peter has in mind here is more than just doing what is ethically right by God. It includes that, but it's more than just that. It also has the element of beauty and attractiveness to it. That's the word that he's using right there for honorably. It presents an attractiveness to your, con- to your conduct. There is a flavor that people are tasting in your conduct out in the world because they see it as godly. It's different than what the rest of the world is doing. And so he wants our conduct to actually adorn the gospel that we proclaim. That's what he wants. We want our conduct to put off the fragrance of Christ to others so that the scent causes them to sit up and take notice. Peter says this is one of the purposes, actually, for our own holiness. So that when they slander you as evildoers, they will observe your good works and will glorify God on the day he visits. Peter is calling us right here to do good to others so that they will see our good works and behold the light of the gospel and be saved. That's what he's wanting. And so there's an evangelistic element to godly living. We're called to be a holy priesthood who proclaims the praises of Christ. But we demonstrate how praiseworthy God is by living transformed lives that he has already worked in us by the Holy Spirit. Now this may mean, right, this may seem strange because in the same sermon, right, this this may seem strange because in the same sermon Jesus preached that we're to let our light shine before others, So that when others see our good works, they glorify God. He said that, but then in chapter 6, verse 1, that Sermon on the Mount in Matthew, he says, and he calls us to not practice our righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. So which is it? Let our light shine or not let our good deeds, our righteousness be seen by others? Which is it? Well, the difference is our motivation and our goal for godly living. It's both. Because it's a matter of the heart. It's about our motivation and goal for godly living. We conduct ourselves honorably before the world, not to draw attention to us, but so that others may see the glory of God. Peter is saying 
that our good works should serve as a window into our hope, into our trust, into our peace, and all that we are relying upon the Lord in. They take notice that we are visibly different and ask why. They take notice because instead of living for comfort and convenience, we sacrifice to grow spiritually. Instead of living to accumulate more, we give generously to those in need. Instead of looking for the affirmation of man, we honor and humbly praise others for their efforts. This is the different life, the countercultural life, the radical life that Jesus, and now Peter, is calling us to. God's glory in the salvation of sinners is what motivates us to show off the gospel's power through our own godliness. The purpose of honorable conduct is sinners glorifying God in their salvation. We want the beauty of our conduct not to leave, pe- or not to leave people just wanting more, but wanting to know more of God. We may be tempted to think that becoming more like the world is going to gain us a hearing. Peter actually says the exact opposite. What gets the attention of others is being visibly different in the world. So how do we do that? How do we live visibly different? How do we go about doing that? Peter gives us two practical contexts to work this out. The first is how we relate to governing authorities. And so we come to point number two, honor your governing authorities in verses 13 to 17. One way that Christians live honorable lives in a culture at odds with God is by submitting to the governing authorities. And you see that there in verse 13. Peter commands Christians everywhere to submit to every human authority. Astounding claim. Whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to governors as those sent out by him. Now, if you want to really feel the impact of this, you really got to know the context under which Peter is writing right here. More than likely, he's writing just before the great fire of Rome under the Roman emperor who was absolutely brutal. His name is Nero. As Nero's popularity waned among the people, it's said that he he had a team of arsonists set fire to different parts of the city. But citizens started to wonder how so many fires took place at the same time. In different parts of the city. How is that possible? So in order to get a scapegoat, Nero had to deflect. And who did he deflect upon but Christians? According to the Roman historian Tacitus, Nero decided to blame the Christians who were loathed by the Romans. And as a result, Christians were covered with wild beast skins, torn to death by dogs, or they were fastened on crosses. And when daylight failed, were burned to serve as lamps by night. Friends, Peter is not naive. He's not naive. He knew what it meant to submit to corrupt and cruel leaders. Right? He lived it under Pontius Pilate. He almost died under King Herod, Acts chapter 12. You can go back and read that passage. And right here, he would would live to witness this the burning of Rome under Nero. If Peter can call Christians to submit to a godless emperor, how much more in our own day? Understand, Peter isn't speaking to the topic of civil disobedience. That's not what he's covering here. That's a different conversation for a different day. 
There is certainly a place for that when God's will is defied and violated. But Peter is speaking about the general truth of how Christians respond in most situations. In most situations, we're to submit to governing authorities. But why? Why do you do that? Well, look at verse 13. He tells us, because of the Lord. So we submit, not as a compromise to the government, but because of our confidence in the Lord who actually reigns over all human governments. That's why we submit. As Jesus said after his resurrection, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. All human authorities are subject to Jesus who has all authority. And the authority that governments and that rulers in this world possess is all derivative of God himself, the highest authority over them all. Their authority comes from God. And you see why right there in verse 14. It's to curb lawlessness and evil that's innate in every single one of, in every single one of us. What is lawlessness? Right? What is sin but lawlessness? And so, friends, this is a reminder that no one is autonomous in this world. Nobody is autonomous. Not even the highest forms of government are autonomous. All are accountable and subject to God in the end. Instead, God instituted government, as Peter says in verse 14, to punish those who do what is evil and to praise those who do what is good. Governments don't save people, but they preserve order so that the saving message of the gospel can be heard by sinners so that they might be saved. That's the point of human government. Even for governments that don't aim to do this like Nero, we're still called to submit. And the goal of such submission is that we silence the ignorance of foolish people by doing good, as Peter says there in verse 15. When we obey governing authorities, we not only glorify God, but we put to rest any slanderous accusations that somehow Christians are just lawless. They just go around, they're anarchy everywhere. And they just go around doing whatever they want to do. Well, that's not the case. Peter is saying that how we relate to the government influences what others think about God and Christianity. Christians can submit to the government because we belong to God. Peter says in verse 16, what does he call us? God's slaves. He grounds our submission to our identity before God. So Jesus has set us free from slavery to sin, not to use that freedom as a license to sin, but to use our freedom to serve him in submitting to the government. As it's been said, we submit to the authorities not because we are their servants, but because we are God's. Our submission reveals where our trust and our hope lie. So how do we go about honoring governing authorities? How do we go about doing that? I'm going to give you four things. Number one, obey. Implied in submission is obedience. So that's point number one, obey. We honor those laws that don't conflict with the lordship of Christ, right? We drive the speed limit. We pay our taxes. You carry license and, and registration and insurance and everything else with you in your car because that's the law. Under every act of obedience to the laws of the land is a theological reason for why you're doing it. It's not just, well, I just obey the laws of the land. No, I obey because God is the Lord and the highest authority of all. We do it because of him. Driving the speed limit is ultimately an act of worship and submission 
to God. And that's super convicting if you don't drive the speed limit. I'm sure all of us are guilty. Point number two, we do good. We do good. So not only do we obey, we also need to do good, right? As it says right here, that's how you silence the ignorance of foolish people. It's by doing good. And so the Lord uses our good deeds to silence the ignorance of foolish people. We call on lawmakers, right, to pursue laws and policies that bring honor to God. We care for the needy in ways that the world won't. We show respect to those who don't deserve it. We don't discriminate against any class of people since all are created in God's image. We slander no one. We avoid fighting. We show inexplicable kindness and gentleness. Even as Paul talks about women in your own Bible study, in Titus, you're going to read about that very thing. Doing good in the world isn't caving to the world's system, but submitting to God's will. That's what it is. It gives credibility to our faith in a world that is suspicious of that faith. So how can we proclaim the praises of Christ when our lives are anything but praiseworthy? You can't. It's extremely difficult. Thirdly, we need to watch what we say about governing authorities. Oh, yes, we've got that election coming up next year. We've got to watch what we say about governing authorities. All of us are going to be tempted in this way in one, at one form or another, right? If there is anything that has marked the political landscape in America, it is the amount of hate that comes out of mouths toward elected officials. But brothers and sisters, this presents a unique opportunity, I think, actually for us to glorify God in the way that we speak. When you disagree with elected officials, you can actually do so respectfully. You can disagree with them respectfully and not hatefully. When you're concerned about ungodly policies, you can state your stance without being a jerk. When an elected official's character is reprehensible, you can speak the truth in love. When you speak of someone's position on an issue, you don't have to misrepresent them when you state your concern. The tone and the way that we disagree with our governing authorities ought to be different from the rest of the world that wants to burn it all down. It's got to be different. If all of our neighbors hear from us in person and online is throwing shade and just slinging mud in the face of political rivals, then will they ever listen to the gospel that actually defines us? Will they ever listen to that gospel that defines us? I think it would be hard to. In how we speak about governing authorities, does it convey to the lost that our hope is found only in this life? Or, in how we speak about governing authorities, does it show the lost that, hey, no matter how it goes, my hope is ultimately found in the Lord of Lords, in the King of Kings, and the one who has all authority in heaven and on earth. Everybody is going to submit to him and bow the knee in the end. Peter isn't calling us to refrain from speaking against evil. He is calling us to conduct ourselves in a way that glorifies God and how we respect our governing authorities. Which brings us to the final point, number four. Pray. Pray. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1-3, to Paul tells Timothy to pray for all of those in authority so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. He's not just necessarily just want a quiet life, just to have a quiet life. There's a purpose to that. So that we can share the gospel, so that people 
would be saved. The purpose for this is because it pleases God who wants everyone to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. One of the things that we seek to do, you just heard this from Greg a minute ago, uh, is to pray for elected officials, whether it's governing authorities or it's even Good night, authorities in medicine or health or authorities in transportation. We're praying for all kinds of different authorities in that pastoral prayer every single Sunday. Why? Because we're reminded that we're called to submit to them, but also to pray for them as well. We pray for their salvation. We want to pray that the Lord would use them in a way that would honestly allow for us to live peaceable lives so that the gospel would continue to go forward. That's why we're doing that week in and week out. So when we pray for authorities... We express our trust in God as our highest authority, whom all earthly authorities are going to give an account to. So friends, these are just four ways that we can submit to governing authorities out of submission to Christ, who has all authority. But this is not the only context that we're under authority. Next up is the workplace. Number three, honor your boss. Honor your boss. Verses 18 to 20. Peter now turns to household slaves. And he continues the theme of willing submission. And so as the gospel spread throughout the Greco-Roman world, there were many slaves in the Greco-Roman world that came to faith in Jesus. And slavery was widespread throughout the world at the time, yet it was different from slavery in the American American South because it was not based upon race or ethnicity. There were different reasons why someone might be a slave in this context. Some were captured in war, others were kidnapped, some were born into a slave household, and some may have sold themselves into slavery in order to keep themselves from going bankrupt. But slaves at this time were able to be educated. They were able to hold jobs and to make money, to buy themselves out of their own slavery. And so this slavery wasn't voluntary, though, which we need to understand. And at times could be very brutal when mistreated by their masters. Many viewed them as having a lower status in society. And because of this, many were mistreated. The New Testament... Nowhere commands or commends slavery as right or roots it in the created order of God as if God actually instituted slavery. You're not going to find that anywhere in Scripture in the New Testament. And so slavery is a result of humanity's sin. And in Paul's letter to Timothy, in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 10, he outrightly condemns slave trading or enslaving and even encourages those who can purchase their freedom to actually do so if they can. However, the New Testament authors were concerned with addressing believers in the situations in which they lived. And what's remarkable right here is that Peter addresses slaves in in these letters to churches. Not only Peter, but also Paul as well. They address slaves also. And in doing so, he dignifies the most vulnerable in society and elevates their status by addressing them in this letter as brothers and sisters. That though they may be a slave in a pagan world, they are a chosen child of God. They've got a new status now. And it is far greater than any other status this world could ever confer upon them. And as those under the authority of their master, they aren't to rebel, but to submit with all reverence to both good and cruel masters, it says right there in verse 18. But why do they do it? Look at verse 20. Peter says at the end of verse 20, when you do what is good and suffer, if you endure it, this brings favor with God. In in every single one of these applications, 
of conducting ourselves honorably before the world, Peter grounds our submission in our commitment to God. Our relationship to him is what motivates all that we do as Christians. So when we submit to good and cruel masters and we endure unjust suffering, it causes others to take notice. It causes them to wonder what or who would inspire such humility, such loyalty, that you would be able to endure such suffering. The world would say you only submit to those that are good and you take revenge upon those that are evil. Peter says we submit to both because we serve a better master who has purchased a better life for every single one of us, including slaves. And this is what Peter is getting at in verse 20 when he speaks of favor or grace right there with God. He's speaking about the reward of our future salvation. That reward is what motivates us to endure unjust suffering because we're living for the life to come. Far greater than freedom in this life, though it is wonderful, is freedom in Christ and the hope that it brings. Now, how does that relate to us today, right? We're not slaves in that sense. How does it relate to us today? Well, the closest thing that I think that we have today in terms of application is employees and their employers. I think that's probably the closest thing that we have. And so, brothers and sisters, how do you relate to your boss How do you relate to your boss? How do you relate to them when they don't give you that promotion that you wanted and you think they did you dirty for that? When they regularly correct your work, when they practice dirty delegation and they just keep on piling one assignment and another assignment on top of your plate and they just keep on doing it. How do you respond? When they show attention to your coworker and speak in a condescending tone, to you. Understand, Peter right here is not saying that you need to be a doormat. That is not what he is saying. Or that you can't change jobs if such an environment is truly affecting your health. That's not what he's talking about. But often these moments can actually lead us to bad-mouthing your boss when you're out with coworkers, where a time spent investing in them has now become just a, an office complaining party together. And they may applaud you for the words that you share because they're probably thinking the exact same thing. But in effect, we're no different from them when we're speaking like your coworkers who are condescending your boss. But when they see you respond respectfully and you continue to work diligently in the midst of all of that, they are coming face to face with the wonderful work of God in your life. Their previous suspicions about your faith now suddenly become plausible, and they want to know why you do what you do. When we suffer unjustly and do good, it proclaims the praises of God who brought us out of the darkness of our slavery to sin and into the marvelous light of his Son. And it may just lead some to glorify God on the day that he returns and visits. So, brothers and sisters, how will we be able to call our coworkers to submit to Christ if we can't respectfully submit to our bosses? It's going to be hard to do that. How we speak and respond to our boss will either give clarity to the gospel or it's going to obscure the gospel. We're going to find out how in point number four. Why do we do all this? Point number four. Why does God call us to conduct ourselves in this way? Let's look at verses 21 to 25. 
the honorable one. Our natural inclination when evil is done to us is not to respond like Peter is telling us, right? We don't want to look weak. We want to fight back. That's our natural response. But Peter doesn't say unjust suffering is a coincidence, right? Endure it once and then, you know, you're not going to have to do that again. No worries about that. Instead, he says it's a calling. Not a coincidence. It's actually a calling for us. Look at verse 21. For you were called to this, that is this, everything that is just explained in this passage. You are called to this, for you were called to this. This is a Christian's vocation. And it's our calling because it was Christ's calling. Peter says we were called to this because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. The one to whom every Christian bows the knee is also the one who knows what it means to submit to the point of even death and not even for his own sin, but for our own. And to prove that point, Peter quotes Isaiah 53, where the Lord speaks to his people who will go into exile as slaves of another kingdom and yet declares to them that he's going to restore them to himself through his suffering servant. Right, Similar context in both these passages. And Peter and the biblical authors are identifying that suffering servant as Jesus. Brothers and sisters, when Jesus suffered unjustly, he did not commit sin. There was no deceit that was found in his mouth. Though we may want to insult those who insult us, when Jesus was insulted, he didn't insult in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten others, but he entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. And how did he do that? By bearing our sins on the cross, on that piece of wood. Jesus knows what it means to be a slave, a servant of God who fully submitted himself to God's will to the point of dying on the cross to purchase our salvation from the slave market of our sin. And the result is absolutely astounding. Through unjust suffering came what? salvation. It came our salvation. By his wounds, we are healed and our guilt has been removed. He died so that anyone who repents of their sins and trusts in him might be saved and live a life of righteousness, live a life that is honorable before God in the world. And so friend, if you're not a follower of Christ, have you considered this good news for you under authority? Understand that you will not experience salvation from unjust suffering, but will suffer justly for your sin against God for all eternity if you do not repent of your sin and trust in Christ as your Lord and Savior. The sacrifice for your sin. Turn from straying like a sheep and return to the shepherd and the overseer of your soul. You can do that today by trusting in him. For those who are in Christ, for all of us, for brothers and sisters in here, suffering injustice is not a sign of God's wrath against you, but it's a reminder of your calling in Christ. We can suffer injustice because Christ already suffered to secure our salvation from far worse, the wrath of God. This frees us from the bondage of retaliation. It enables us to conduct ourselves honorably under mistreatment. When we entrust ourselves to the one who judges justly by doing good, when suffering injustice, 
When we do that, people are getting a front row seat to the gospel. And Lord willing, we hope and pray that one day they would glorify God on the day that he visits. We can patiently endure the wrath of others because God's wrath against us has been satisfied through the suffering servant. His life is an example for our own. And so, brothers and sisters, a life that glorifies God is one that honors God-given authority because of Christ. Is that what your life looks like? Let's pray together. Father, we give praise to you that your mercies are new for us. Lord, we know it's an extremely difficult thing to suffer injustice. And so, Lord, we don't speak lightly of that. Lord, because we know that Christ was the one who gave himself for us and suffered unjustly to secure our salvation. And so, Lord, we pray that that all that he did for us, that in his example, Lord, that we would seek to follow in his steps as Peter calls us to. That our conduct before non-Christians would be honorable because we submit to Christ who, who has all authority in heaven and on earth. Lord, help us to do so in a way that would showcase the gospel to the world. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.